Okay, so Isaiah 43. Let's go. We're looking at 1 through 7. Take a deep breath. Let the word of the Lord speak to you and notice words or phrases that grab you here this morning. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. And I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. And I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. Um, this is our fourth week in this Advent season, doing a series, obviously, in Advent. And uh, next week, uh, like I kind of alluded to, next week we'll, we'll, we'll look into, on Christmas Eve, we'll look at, like, what does it mean that God took on flesh and entered into the darkness? Um, and we'll, so we'll get to that and what all that means. Christmas is about Christ. We know that. You, you know that. Um, his entrance his return. I mean, you know, that's what Advent really is thinking and um, trying to rest and wrestle with. That he entered and he left and he's going to return. And we're in that space in between. We're in that waiting period. And the way the historical church has tried to frame that space for you are these, these kind of emotions that move us into actions. This, this idea of hope, peace, joy, love. That's what that's meant to do. Because see, Christians, in a, in a, if you think of it in like waiting rooms, remember waiting rooms before we had phones or before we had smartphones? Um, you know, we just looked at better housekeeping and just like, I don't like any of this. Um, but now it's like we, can, we, we, we just, everybody's in the waiting room on their phones because we don't know what to do in waiting spaces. And, and so um, Christians are in that space. I mean, there's a there should be an edginess, as Fleming Rutledge said to Christians. They should be living life in such a way where your bags aren't fully unpacked. Like, there's this sense in which we want to be rooted in place and know the people and our neighbors around us, but at the same time, we want to realize that this isn't our true country, our true home. Um, the new heavens has to come down and create all of that. And so Christians aren't meant to twiddle their thumbs. They're not, they're not meant to navel gaze. They're not meant to just simply uh, keep the apartment clean in the grass mode and then keep their faith and their idea of who God is private to themselves, and then just go on about their business. That's not the idea um, for the Bible. That's not the idea that God is trying to communicate to us. Um, The idea is that in the waiting time, in the time between, in the space between um, from Jesus' life and then his return, in that space between, you are meant to change. (laughs) You're meant to be under a process of transformation and, and so that you, you give a glimpse of God's character to the places and to the people that you rub elbows with. 
That's the idea. That's what we're supposed to behold and think about and try to live out. Um, And so love is what we're talking about today. Love is, I thought that that would be a really good idea until I looked at it, and then I realized, how do you describe love, right? Like, how do you describe Everest? It's like it's big and scary. Um, Love is like, like that, right? It's glorious, and it's also demanding, and it's also scary, uh, love is just, there's no, there's no amount of violence that's been done in the name of love, right? Um, love is this thing that to practice it, to try to think about, which is what we're trying to do right now, to try to think about practicing love just feels almost like a ridiculous endeavor. It's too big, too important, too nuanced, too depending on the situations at hand and who you're dealing with and the situation, all of that. Why bother? But we bother because, well, love is our telos. Love is everything that we are. Love is the foundation for who you are in Christ Jesus. As as Christ's church, you are swimming in love. Like Love is the point. It's the purpose for your entire life. You know, be a... Below or above, however you want to think of it, you're a, that you're a plumber or you're a welder or you're a lawyer or you're a doctor or you're a teacher or you're a, you're, you're a stay-home uh, mother or whatever you are, whatever your role is in life, but above, below, all of that foundation, you are a lover. You were created in love. You were rescued as an act of love. You were commanded to love. And your future, your promise, the promise for you is that your future will end in a banquet of love with God. Love is the bookends of your whole life. It's all love. And so you can't possibly read the Bible and not see that the pinnacle of all good things that you are meant to be, and there's many of them, right? Like many good things that you are meant to do and be and practice. <laughs> but the core of it, the point of it all is love, right? Like, here's, a, here's just a snapshot. I'll give you a few, right? Colossians 3. 12 through 14, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, this was at all of your weddings, right? (laughs) You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or sorry, sorry, that's it. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then we jump to Jesus' words himself. This is Mark 12. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. John 13, 35, which is Jesus' words as well. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, not if you have great programs. By the way, you love each other, right? So the idea is in the Bible, and this is really difficult for Christian people to get their minds around, but the idea in the Bible is is that um, you can have all the right beliefs and all the right behaviors and still get it all wrong. And you would say, well, how is that possible? And it's like, well, all the parts of the Bible you love, the parts where Jesus is being snarky or somehow um, you know, condescending or whatever it is to the Pharisee, and you're like, yeah, get them. Well, realize that is what the Pharisee is. And we are always in danger of it. The Pharisee is the person who has all the right beliefs and all the right behaviors, but lacks relationship. They lack love. 
And so this is the danger at every one of our doorsteps all the time. Right beliefs and right behaviors need right relating in, with people. True faith, Paul says in Galatians 5.6, is expressed in love. <laughs> That's how true faith is actually expressed. You get it out of your system by loving people. So, love isn't though for the faint of heart, is it? Like when we talk about practicing love, before we get too ahead of ourselves and thinking in about and practicing love, we must start with acknowledging its difficulty, right? Like it's terribly hard. Any of you want to raise your hand and say, I actually am a really good lover, and by that I mean relating to people, okay? Just, I mean, you know, like anybody want to put that down as the first line item on their resume? Wonderful at love. Love is slippery. The word love is a slippery word. The, love, the word love is wrongly placed all the time. We say we love God and we say we love tacos. Is there a difference? There should be. And I do love tacos, I'm just saying. It's, just, we, it's, it's overused. Our culture isn't helping us much. It's caused the word... Our culture has caused the word to be reduced, debased, it's confused, it's debased into sentimentality, it's used to describe what is mere infatuation, and it's even used to describe two people who just got together for one night and reportedly made love. This is confusing for us. It gets into our systems, and then it all needs to be detangled for us. And, you know, to be fair, um, I don't mean to just point the finger at the culture out there, the church, who has an arsenal, really, of stories and lessons on love from the Bible to draw from. (laughs) Isn't much better, are we, you know? At some point, you make your way into a community of Christ's church, and it won't take you long to witness that love's opposite. That should be an amen from you. You know what I mean? We do our fair share of hating, don't we? We do our fair share of putting up fences in all the wrong places. Um, We do our fair share of looking down on, ignoring, abusing, taking advantage, neglecting. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, really. Not being good at love as Christian people should not surprise us. You didn't get entrance into the faith, you didn't become a Christian, or you didn't get entrance into the local church because of your loving skills credentials. It wasn't like you passed the test and then they were like, you can come in. Not at all. You you, you didn't have any of those necessarily, those credentials, and yet you still got entrance. And so now what? And that's the thing. If anything, I would say to be Christian is to be an apprentice in love. To take taking that actually seriously, that you are a lover in process. You are someone trying to figure out love. You're trying to figure out all sorts of things, which your core main thing that you're trying to figure out bef- above and beyond, like how to get this kid or how to make this sale or whatever it is that you're working on right now, you are trying to figure out love. What the church, the church should have a sign, every church should have a sign above it saying a bunch of people trying to figure out love. And the sub 
heading should be failing a lot, but not giving up either. So, hopefully, we figure out love through fits and starts. You've been baptized in a death and been raised up to new life to try to work out love. Because you know love is where you're headed. So the first sign, I would say this, the first sign of practicing real love, practicing the kind of love that the Bible has for us and the, the, the kind of love that God calls us to, the, the, it's almost paradoxical. Uh, the first sign of practicing real love is um, confessing when we don't do it. <laughs> That's actually, I would say, the beginning place of actually loving people well, is confessing that we fail at it. It's interesting to note that Jesus' brother James stressed that we should, quote, confess our sins to each other. That's James five sixteen. Confess our sins to each other. And this is something that I don't think we notice is what he says after it, which is so that we could experience healing. Like that something healing takes place when you confess sins. That's why you stay sick when you, and I'm talking about physically, I'm talking about spiritually and emotionally, when you keep things tucked away. You see, it's when love's opposite has been openly admitted that love has an opportunity to flood back in and heal you and repair the damage. You got to get it out. Tell someone. But here's the thing. Um, this act of, this kind of confession, admitting and talking about the failure in love and how bad of a lover I can be, is not something that comes naturally to me. It's not something naturally to you. It's not really woven into your DNA, is it? I mean, my three-year-old, uh, soon-to-be four-year-old, and openly admits her, her failures all the time to me. So regularly she comes to me and she says something like, Dad, I just hit my sister. But it is said with almost like a sociopathic tone. Yeah. <laughs> like, usually there's like a wry smile that she has while she's, you know, confessing to me. Seems to me that what's really, I don't think she understands the cost of her violence. And um, I would say, I would argue that underneath this veiled remorse is just manipulation for attention. And you see that sometimes in adults, too. Real confession isn't after attention. You see, real, real confession is after healing. It, real confession is about you starting to feel and, and know and experience and, and acknowledge that what you've done, your actions, cost someone something. There's been damage. And they deserve better, and you were meant to be something better. And so you've got this hope of like healing it somehow. That's what real confession is. And that kind of confession, friends, comes from God. That's godly confession. It's, it comes from understanding our real identity, our, our real purpose as people. And so what I would say is this, is um, real confession is really birthed out of really listening. We're really listening to God, like really hearing and taking in and basking in what he says about you, what he wants for you. 
You see, the, the confessions that get us practicing real love begin by taking in and listening to God's loving language to us and, 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 and the story and, and, and being enveloped in the story. And that's where Isaiah 43 comes in. That's why I picked Isaiah 43. It's why I love Isaiah. Because there's so many passages on love you could go to, right? It's like, it's like if you get, went home, if you go out for lunch, and it's like, well, we talked about love today at church. Somebody's like, you, oh, I love 1 Corinthians 13. It's like, oh, we didn't go there. But I love Isaiah 43, because Isaiah 43 is clearly about God's overwhelming love for us. You know, none of us have to be Bible scholars to read it and go, it's pretty apparent that God loves me. But it's unique in that it's communicated right in the middle of a felt experience of terrible difficulty for God's people. The preceding verse to the text is this. This is Isaiah 42, the end of the chapter says this, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he didn't understand. It burned him up. He still didn't take it to heart. It's like there's discipline happening in them because of a lack of love on their end, a relentless lack of love. And because God loves, God is like, I have got to wake you up. And you're still not listening. Their failures brought that difficulty. And that difficulty was clouding out, like the destruction all around them, the loss that they had experienced from Babylon and exile and being ripped from their home and everything that you can read about in that story. It was so hard for them. It was clouding out this idea that maybe God... Is still loves us. But the lessons for them weren't just about their failure. It was about his passionate love. And that's where Isaiah 43, 1 comes in. Because after saying, look, this has been horrible for you. Horrible. You are in terrible times. But now, thus says the Lord. That's God's way of saying, but now listen up. Tune your ear to me. Pay attention. I'm telling you something deadly serious. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel said, the prophets don't reveal ideas about God. They're not musing about theories or different possibilities. They are relaying from their own felt experience and conversations what the attitudes are of God, how he feels and how he thinks. So when you read the prophets in the Old Testament, realize they are telling you what God thinks about you. And so sometimes it comes across as this very extreme poetic language because sometimes we need that to perk us up and wake us up. You'll sometimes hear in the church or in books that you might read how God is immutable, meaning unchanging, and I believe he is. But I think we unwittingly mistake that to mean, at least on at least a subconscious level, that God is somehow also cold and detached because he's unchanging. Like he somehow has a, he's a ruler with a flat F affect to him. But when you go to Isaiah 43, can that be possibly be true? Love, Isaiah 43 is love poetry from a father to his children. God is saying, listen to my voice. I'm, I'm calling you by name. 
I, I, I know you. I know what you face. I know what you've done. I know what you've been through. And you're still mine. You're mine. And nothing's going to change that. And he says, you're honored. You're precious. Right? Some of you love to hear that word. Some of you are struggling with the word as I say it. That you're precious to him. And he says, I love you. In spite of everything you've done, I know everything that you've done, and I know that things are dark and hard and difficult, but I love you. I've been reading this Advent season, The Tale of Despero. Anyone? No? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You'll go home and read it now, and you can thank me later. I, in my opinion, I think it's a perfect story for Christmas. It's about light and darkness. It's about loss. It's about reality, facing it. It's about hope. It's about forgiveness. It's about love. It's about a little mouse, a little little sickly mouse with big ears who doesn't quite fit in in the mouse community in the castle that he's born in. And his family doesn't like him very much. And through failure, they cast him out. And this strange little mouse falls in love with a princess. Shocker. That's what always happens, right? And this princess subsequently gets captured and held in a dungeon. Again, very typical. And so Despero goes after her. And when he finds her down in the deep, dark dungeon, because her captives are still there, there's a moment of real fear and uncertainty. He wants to rescue the one that he loves. He wants light to prevail over the darkness. And when he encounters this moment, this moment of decision, when it's hard and it's terrible, the author, Kate DiCamillo, breaks the wall in the story, which she frequently does throughout the story. She speaks to you, the reader. She breaks the wall in the story at this moment, and she says this, quote, Reader, Sorry, I forgot to tell you, when approaching the princess, the princess whispers, Despero. And then she shouts it a second time to him, Despero. And this is where she says, reader, nothing is sweeter in this sad world than the sound of someone you love calling your name. Nothing. For Despero, the sound was worth everything, his lost tale, his trip to the dungeon, and back out of it, and back into it again. The voice of someone you love calling your name. I don't have much to say, really. The words that God says to you in Isaiah 43, I think, speak for themselves. I would just ask this. What is it worth to you that God knows everything that you've done? He knows what you still do right now. And he calls you by name and he says, I love you. Nothing will separate you from me. What is it worth to you? That before you can figure it all out and you can perfectly practice out love in your life, God says, don't worry, you're still mine. Because I created you. And nothing I create, I want to be abandoned. I want to keep it. I want to change it over time through my love. 
that you are precious to him. This is the question for anyone who wants to hold on to hope of love in the darkness of the world. This kind of unfailing love will get us honest about who we can be sometimes, but also who we could be over time if we practice. Because realize this, um, because I know what I'm doing here. I know it's like I'm trying to talk about love and talk about confessing sin at the same time. But realize this, we don't confess our lack of love to then give up on trying to be more loving. What would be the point in that, right? What would be the point in confessing sin and failure if we are content to live half-hearted lives. If you're content to live a half-hearted life that does not thrive, does not change, does not experience beauty, then for goodness sakes, don't confess. If that's what you want. If you would like to settle for darkness, by all means, don't confess anything. Keep it to yourself. If you want to experience something that seemingly is impossible in your relationships to this world, and to the people around you. Then listen to what God says and start confessing. Start looking inward and see who you really are at times and get honest about it. The practice of love means heeding the word practice. It's a really important word for what we're talking about. Meaning there is no quick fix, there's no immediate breakthrough for becoming someone who practices love well. I have this habit over the last few years, probably, you know, the the whole pandemic thing did this to me. I don't know if it did this to you. But I have this habit now, I feel something coming on and I'm like, I'm going to the clinic, I'm going to get a pack for this, right? Because I just don't want to endure having my body fight something off for weeks on end. I'd rather go to the clinic and get it over with. Just give me something, get through this, the stakes are too high, life is difficult enough as it is, I don't really want to deal with fighting off some bacteria or virus or whatever it is. I want to cheat the process of having to endure the hardship of a sickness. The point I'm trying to make here is that the Bible never paints some fairy tale picture as if we can somehow master love overnight. It's not like you come to God, you confess your sin, and you wake up the next day, and it's like, oh, I'm perfectly good at love now. Right? No, not at all. There isn't a Z-pack for this. I wish there was. Because notice in Isaiah 43, verse 2 and 3, it says, when you, twice, when you. You probably would just glance over that. It says, when you pass through waters and when you walk through fire. Not if, not maybe. (laughs) He says, when you. Oh, I, I, it's like God is saying in Isaiah 43, I really, really, really love you. By the way, it does not eliminate waters and fire. Not at all. You're still going to have to do that. I think it's really important to realize that God's love is not an immunity to hardship. It's, it's a promise of presence, and it's a promise that you won't be destroyed. It's like you will be cast out into the ocean. The point is, is that God loves gives you a buoy. But you will still have to feel like sometimes, I feel like maybe I might drown. No, you won't. No, you won't. But it will be scary at times. These words are given precisely because God knows you will have to face terrible difficulties. It's part of the training. Poetically, deep waters and flames of fire are the conditions you must learn 
It's where you learn how to love. It would be, think about it, it would be a lot easier to trust God's love, to just, I always feel God's love, and I can just so give it to others when it's 70 and sunny. But that's not the conditions in which I have to learn love. I have to learn love under the conditions where it's really difficult, where it takes a lot of work, takes a lot of practice. But God, you see, in Isaiah 43 is telling you that God will not pretend that that's real life. 70 sunny, 70 and sunny is not real life. You Ohio folks know this. You Ohio folks who've lived here for years know when it's 70 and sunny, you're like, stop everything. This is wonderful. We get like three of these a year. Everything's better on those days, isn't it? God won't pretend with us. And something tells me that we know this. We know we wouldn't learn the grit that real love requires, if that's how it was. The whole lesson I'm trying to get here across, try to wrap up here, the, the whole lesson this sermon is trying to teach us is this, that you are the one that God loves, you. You. Wasn't my decision, wasn't my choice. You are the one that God loves. And this world... As it is, your current family, your current body, your current neighborhood, your current school, your current workplace, your current circumstances are the conditions in which he wants you to believe that he loves you and figure out what it means to love other people in those exact conditions. You don't get to choose your exact conditions, and so then you can figure out love. That's not how it's going to work. God's love is grounded in the place that you're at right now. And you have to figure out what it means to feel His love and realize that He loves you in your conditions. That is your task. That is what you contend with. To figure out what it is to know and believe and absorb that God loves me in this current state that I'm in. And then in that state, as much as I wish I could change it, figure out what it means to love other people. If we sit around and wait for the conditions to get right, to get in on love, you're going to wait a really long time and it's never going to come around. That's what I'm trying to say. And this reality, this truth is terribly daunting, but it is possible. If God wasn't speaking it, I would doubt it myself. But the Bible says that God's words, quote, shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's Isaiah 55. God says, I love you and you will become love over time. And God accomplishes everything he says he's going to do. Therefore, love is worth practicing because you have the whole force of heaven behind you. I could spend hours talking about all the little practical ways that you can go about practicing the love of God and neighbor. Maybe that's what you came in this morning understanding the series that we are in. You were like, I can't wait to, and I'm not going to do any of it. I mean, the reality is I could do all of that. Here's how you really truly see people. Here's how you truly listen to people. Here's how you show hospitality. Here's how you actually really forgive people. You know, he, he, here is all these ways that you should serve, that you should pray for people. But I don't have the time for that. And besides, 
Besides, honestly, if you were to get busy paying attention to what God is saying to you, really listening and confessing, the spirit of the living God would give you creative urges that are far better than anything that I would give you. Because he knows by his spirit, he knows the conditions that you're actually in better than I do. I want to just remind you that living into the capacity of loving God and others will never be a finished product. I don't want you going out here with any illusions. We won't ever reach a place where we are completely satisfied with our loving abilities. If we were, we'd be deceiving ourselves in revealing the truth is not in us, as John would say. And so the practice of love is just that. It's practice. It's practice. It's not perfectionism. Perfectionism demands that you don't fail. That's what perfectionism demands. And if you can't fail, if that's an impossibility for you, then you can't truly be honest before God and you can't truly be seen by other people. That's why perfectionists who want to just live in it all the time struggle with intimacy. Me, one of those, by the way. A guard itself can never truly love as God calls them to love. You have to begin to like break all that open and say, here's who I am, warts and all. That, now it's like love is showing up in the room. And so long as we're living into the reality of how loved we are, we go after love with vulnerability, with, with a kind of hope that over time... I, I, I'll get better at this, (laughs) like little bit by little bit. I'll get better at this. And so as you you come to communion this morning, as you come to the table, uh, these are the things. I don't know what's wrestling, what's coming up inside of you, welling up inside of you. What are the unique demands of love that are eating at you? You know, what is is, is something in the receiving category of all of this? Like, you are still feeling like, I just don't know how you would possibly love me. Like, some of you are like, yes, I know God loves, and I know God loves me, but it's a flustered love. It's a love like with a an, an, uh, uh, raised eyebrow. I love you, but you need to get your act together. It's not him. It's not his nature. His son has come and made sure that that doesn't exist. And so I don't know where you're at and I don't know what you're feeling. What are the failures and love's demands do you need to confess? It's interesting to me that that last night that Jesus was with his disciples before he was taken and crucified and he gave us this ritual, what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. And it's not about your behavior, it's about his love. That's what it was. It was that you come and take part. This bread representing Christ's body. This cup of wine representing his blood shed. And he's like, you need to do this as often as you gather to remember and proclaim it. Because you have a lot of love slipping out of you all the time. All the time. And so each week you come get reminded of that. That in spite of who I can be at times, I am deeply, deeply loved.
And so take the space that you need to talk. take the space to pray, to confess. The Bible says don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. All that really means is, is that we get honest before him about who we are, what we're fighting, what we're wrestling with, what we need to, what we feel like the spirit of saying, hey, you need to have this conversation, you need to make this prayer, you need to serve in this way, whatever the, the spirit is urging you in. We all have situations. There is, there were no, none of us are exempt from that. G.K. Chesterton said that the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they are generally the same people. And so there is a difficult person for you to love right now, whoever you are, in your current condition. And so I pray that you take time to pray through that, wrestle with that, come to God, receive His grace, be reminded of that, and go out in peace. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, it is difficult to wrap our minds around the idea of how much you love us. May we wrestle with it this morning with an open heart, with an open mind, with just sit with this as long as it takes. Um, and may it break us open a little bit, soften us a little bit. It is wild, beyond my wildest comfort. Who could ever imagine a God like you? who in spite of our failures, in spite of our violence, in spite of our neglect, in spite of all the things that we do, the lying, the cheating, in spite of all of that, you can look upon us and you can say, but you're mine. I love you. Thank you for your son, for ultimately that's the ultimate act that shows us what you're like, God. We love that. We love that truth this morning. May we hang on to that truth as we come to the table and take part in your body, the Son's body broken for us, the Son's blood shed for us. It's in Jesus' name, amen.